1: From the PacWest Center in downtown Portland, presented by High Caliber Millwrights, here's John Canzano with the bald Face truth.
0: I'm a nostalgic person. People who have visited me in the home studio know that I'm nostalgic because I'm surrounded by memorabilia, artifacts, reminders, things that are sentimental to me. A Durham Bulls jersey that my dad wore in the 1960s, behind me on the wall. A sport coat that my grandfather used to wear, and he had told me once upon a time, I want to go to Kentucky Derby sometime with you, I want to go to Churchill Downs. My grandfather never made it there. He was in his 90s, he passed away, age of 94. I got his sport coat when they were cleaning out his closet. I hung it on the wall here. But I got to tell you, when I went to cover the Kentucky Derby, I packed it. I wore it into Churchill Downs. I had a little classy eye when I did that. I'm nostalgic, I'm trying to tell you. Legacy matters. Matters to me. Maybe it matters to you. It matters to a lot of sports athletes as well. We have the Baseball Hall of Fame. Big controversy when somebody isn't allowed into the Hall of Fame. Oh, it affects their legacy, we say. Pro Football Hall of Fame. The Basketball Hall of Fame. We are nostalgic as a society. I think in part, that's why we keep stats and we say things like, greatest right-handed hitter in the history of baseball, more home runs, more strikeouts, best passer. We're nostalgic. Is Phil Mickelson nostalgic? Does he care about legacy? Lefty has 45 wins on the PGA Tour. He has six major championships, three Masters titles, two PGA championships. Hell, I was there at Augusta National in 2004 when Phil Mickelson won his first major with a birdie on the final hole to win by a stroke over Ernie Els. I remember that. Mickelson was in his 30s. Mickelson won $1.17 million. I've never seen a human being in person, an athlete as happy as Phil Mickelson was that day when he wanted Augusta. I was there. I saw it. It was cool. Now Phil Mickelson's legacy is what? He has joined the LIV golf event. We're going to watch him play in a U.S. Open this week, but what is his legacy? Is it tarnished forever? Is it improved in some of your eyes? I don't know. Is it, is, it, is it not improved in some of your eyes? I was talking with a good friend of mine today just a few minutes ago about Phil Mickelson's legacy, and it got me thinking. I left the conversation going, you know, I don't know that I'm ever going to think about Phil Mickelson ever again without thinking about him jumping ship, selling out, becoming part of the LIV Golf Invitational Tournament, the problems he had with gambling, the problems he's had with the PGA Tour, the things that he said. All of that stuff is going to occur to me before I think about the 2004 Masters Tournament. And i got to be honest, back in the day in 2004, That's all I was thinking about. And and for about 15 years, when I thought about Phil Mickelson, I didn't think about his other major wins. I didn't think about his career earnings. I didn't really think of him as a gambler, even though I knew that he was gambling. I knew he went to college at Arizona State, but I never thought about that. But, but, uh, you know, it was the 2004 win at Augusta because the narrative on Phil Mickelson's career as he was trying to get that first major was that he had a little tin cup to his game. In fact, he had a non-speaking role in the movie Tin Cup in 1996. And it was interesting to watch him struggle to break through. He was a top 10 finisher. He was a guy who flirted around with it. But he would take a shot invariably. He would go for it on, you know, a par 5 instead of laying up. And he'd end up in the water or the sand or he'd hit the ball into the into the rough and he would end up you know falling a stroke or two behind the winner old lefty finally broke through in 2004 and it was really cool to see that like it was a lot of people thinking like this guy is going to win for a long time at a high level he has had collapses in his career he's had victories in his career but i challenge you when it comes to phil mickelson to think about anything other than the fact that he has abandoned the PGA tour and gone off to play in this LIV golf invitational. And now he's playing in the U S open this week. And you know, it is clouding the discussion. And I agree with the golfers who are annoyed that this thing is this, this narrative is clouding the discussion, but I don't blame the media members for asking about it. I blame golfers like Phil Mickelson and Dustin Johnson, who, 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 who participated in a money grab and, now would probably prefer that we continue to talk about golf let's take hey, let's keep the questions to golf i've been in on a number of news conferences over the years where it was uncomfortable i've been into news conferences where you know people had ncaa uh, violations that were looming i've been in news conferences with coaches that you know their job status was up in the air and in fact it was very unlikely that they would return in their current role I've been around news conferences where people had done uh, horrible things, made bad trades, uh, been suspended, uh, you know, lost big games, and you know, often those things can get uncomfortable. But in no setting have I ever been asked to like not ask a question. You know, the closest it came was probably when Chip Kelly was facing a show-cause penalty from the NCAA over his dealings with Willie Lyles, and he went to a Pac-12 media day. And the Pac-12 media reps were told not to allow media members to talk about the show-cause thing, and we did it anyway, and they eventually said, all right, we need to keep the questions to media day. Uh, I thought it was kind of silly, but it it wasn't like Chip Kelly or anybody else didn't understand why we were asking it wasn't like these golfers on the tour now should be uh, confused about why people are asking. I want to talk about the legacy of Phil Mickelson in particular. What is it? What is it in your mind? How has it changed in the last few weeks? Uh, left-handed golfer who you know will uh, be a Hall of Famer, no doubt. 57 professional wins. Uh, a guy who uh, won 45 on the PGA Tour. He's got the majors. He's, uh, you know, won the Masters three times. Uh, you talk about U.S. Open titles. You talk about Masters titles. You talk about PGA Championships. He's got six major victories. But what is, in your mind, the legacy of Phil Mickelson? 503-417-7575 is the number. we got a great show today. Tim Donahue will be joining us, former NBA official who was at the center of the scandal that rocked uh, you know the referees and rocked the NBA. Tim Donahue until 2007 was a golden boy by NBA standards. But he resigned from the league in the summer of '07 after the FBI started investigating allegations that he bet on games that he officiated in. And in fact they accused him of wagering on games in his last two seasons. They claimed that he made calls that affected the point spread in those games. Donahue pled guilty to two federal charges. He went to federal prison. He served 11 months in Pensacola, Florida, and then went to a halfway house. He's joining the show today in about 20 minutes. He's going to talk about the NBA playoffs. We're going to talk about what happened, what went wrong, what, what was it like for him to be in prison, what is he doing now. We'll talk about all of that with Tim Donahue, who has uh, pointed a finger back at the NBA. He says he was not alone that the NBA uh, knew that, uh, you know, the NBA knew what it was doing when it was assigning certain officials to certain games or directing the officials and steering them or nudging them in a direction that the league wanted. Uh, Donahue wrote a memoir. It's called Blowing the Whistle. We had him on, uh, you know, after he came out of prison. We had him on. He talked about the underworld. He talked about betting and wagering in sports. And he, uh, he, you know, raised some interesting questions. We'll talk to Don He coming up at 3.30. Let's go to the phone lines. Erickson Lake Oswego is going to lead us off. L-I-V, Phil Mickelson's legacy. What's
2: up, Eric? Hi. You know what? You you touched upon it, but kind of threw it away. I don't think it could be underestimated the amount of Mickelson's gambling debt or his compulsion as a gambler. And his mind, he's already shown this willingness to throw tens of millions away gambling. I think this guy in a, in a wise guy movie would be called a degenerate gambler. Hence, I think that's where his head has gone. That, 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 to me, seems to be a, uh, a, a a popular
3: candidate for a motivation for doing what he's doing.
0: Yeah, and, and you may be right. You know what? You just made me think of something, Eric. I want to ask Tim Donahue what he thinks of Mickelson and the gambling issues we see around Mickelson. Donahue knows better than anybody. When you get involved in things maybe you shouldn't be involved in, how that can bleed into your professional life. I'll ask him if he believes that Phil Mickelson's desperation or this move with the LAV tournament could be connected to his gambling debts. Tony's in Oregon City. Tony, what's Phil Mickelson's legacy?
2: Hi, John. Uh... Gosh, you know, I struggle with that. Um, I like lefty. Um, I have more of a concern on if it wasn't for the fact that Saudi Arabia was supporting this and some some other billionaire group was that had no, no um, issues with anybody, and they were just someone that wanted to compete against the PGA, and it's called capitalism. But... Only if it was that circumstance where I, yeah. I have a sour taste in my mouth with the Saudi Arabia. I love the golfers. I got no problem with Greg Norman. I got no problem with the lefty. I got no problem with the guys going for a money grab. Isn't that why we play golf? Thanks, John.
0: Yeah, I appreciate that. I, 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 uh, I'm conflicted, too, because there's part of me that if this were a football league and it was a competing football league, I'd say the market won't lie to us. The market's going to tell us whether or not this thing should exist, right? Famous, uh, famous mantra, the market doesn't lie. But the involvement politically of the Saudi government makes me uncomfortable. And there's two elements to it. One of them is the human rights violations and the human rights record of Saudi Arabia. Second issue, though, is local. And it, it, I don't think people outside of you and I are going to understand this. There are two high-profile cases in which Saudi citizens were accused of crimes. One of them was a student at Portland State who was run down on Hawthorne, run over, killed. And the Saudi citizen was arrested and was going to face a trial and a jury and justice. Probably would have ended up with a manslaughter charge. Who knows? But the Saudi government extricated their citizen under the cover of night, helped them get out of the United States so they wouldn't have to face criminal prosecution. I'm not comfortable with that. And and in some ways, I don't know publicly if I can say this without taking some grief, but in some ways I think more about that than I do about the general human rights issues in Saudi Arabia because that happened here. And now I see Pumpkin Ridge Golf Club, a golf club and a golf course that I had no beef with, that I played a few times in my time here in the state of Oregon. Know plenty of members out there. You know, when I, I, I've been out to Pumpkin Ridge plenty of times, seen some great events there. But I'm tremendously disappointed that the LIV Golf Tournament is going to use our region of the country, it's going to use that course, going to use it like a tissue paper blow its nose throw it away and the money for that tournament is going to a corporation in texas it's not going to benefit anybody here so we're just being used and there's part of that that bothers me on a deeper more fundamental level than anything and i think the caller is right like if this were just you know phil knight's launching a golf tour Uh, You know, Judah Newby, you know, is throwing hundreds of millions of dollars and he wants to launch a golf tour and compete with the PGA. I'm interested in seeing what happens, but I'm not uncomfortable with the event going on and I don't feel like we're being used. The legacy of Phil Mickelson, Judah Newby, what is the legacy of Phil Mickelson?
1: It's completely turned on its head in one year for me. Um, My wife is not a big sports fan. But we watched the entire final round of the uh, PGA Championship last year um, that was played in South Carolina, and Phil won it at 50 years old. Flocks of people, just thousands of people following him down 17, down 18. I got a little teary-eyed. <laughs> like, it was an insane scene. Um, and he won. He was the oldest major winner ever at 50 to win that major. And my wife and I sat there and watched the whole thing. And at this point, i he's done irreparable damage to his reputation in my eyes. And uh, I think the gambling debts is fascinating. I think that's plausible to be primary motivation, and it yeah. also fits with his personality. But to me, JC, it couldn't be more stark. It's been a 180-degree turn for me because, you know, if we talk legacy, for me it helps to say, all right, what are the first five lines of a guy's legacy? What's on right. line one, line two, line three? And at this moment, for me, Phil Mickelson, line one of his legacy, money grab with Saudi Arabian-funded LIV golf. Line two is U.S. Open failure, failures. And it's sad to say, but I kind of hope he misses the cut this week. Um, I, I hope he does poorly. I'm rooting against him. Um, yeah, he's done that. And, and, but, yeah, winged foot, 18, right? That's the only major he has not won is the U.S. Open. I I'll be, I hope he does poorly this week. Um, and line, line three of his legacy, I guess, is that he, you know, the back and forth with Shipnuck in the book. And line four is he had a good Instagram game for about two years. Yeah. Talking about his seeds and his calves, and he was so likable. And then line five is probably 2004 Masters, like you were saying. But outside of that, to me, it's, it's negative points against him. Line one, line two, line three.
0: I used to like Phil Mickelson. I used to root for Phil Mickelson. Now I find myself kind of shaking my head. What's Mickelson's legacy in your eyes? 503-417-7575.
1: You've got the home of the truth. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game.
0: What's Lefty's legacy or what's left of Lefty's legacy? You tell me in your mind, Phil Mickelson and his legacy. I'm left thinking about it this week, and you know, I don't I don't dislike Phil Mickelson, but I, I think he's he's crushed his legacy. But what do you think? 503-417-7575 is the phone number. Tim Donahue, former NBA official coming up, bottom of the hour. We're going to do some ticket giveaways for Worlds of Sport on today's show, so I want you here for that. Let's go to the phone lines. Mark is in Portland. Mark, welcome.
3: Hey, how you doing? I, I'm For good. me, with Phil Mickelson, it's, it's kind of like the Pete Rose thing. I mean, <laughs> uh, Mickelson's a great golfer. I mean, six major championships. How many guys have won over five major titles, you know, historically? So you got to give him credit. Uh, you know, he's the oldest uh, guy to ever win a major, but uh, he definitely took the easy way out. I mean, I think Rory McIlroy said it best. And But I think uh, a little bit we're, we're kind of making a little bit too much of it. We should be talking about the U.S. Open. I would bet yep. that all those guys uh, that switched, not one of them's in the top ten in this U.S. Open. I, I might be wrong. Dustin Johnson, you know, he can ever be – 10 tournaments it seems like lately he'll get hot but the, the main guys are still in the PGA I mean um, that and that's what I'm looking forward to uh, is, is the is the PGA and the US Open and uh, this weekend Father's Day and watching a, a great golf tournament I just I think we should stop giving these guys any stage and it, yeah. it's like when Steve Young switched to the USFL I mean even that didn't didn't you know dent the NFL and I, I think I don't want to make the similarities with two different sports, but they have yet to to get, you know, Phil Mickelson's the highest-profile person, but they, if, if they don't get Tiger Woods, getting an aging player like that without getting Tiger Woods is irrelevant. Until they get some of these young guns, it's not going to affect the PGA at all.
0: Appreciate the call. I also think it's really interesting. We saw, like, you know, a week ago they – the tour organizers, the LIV tour organizers, they they kind of threw Greg Norman under the bus a little bit. I don't know if anybody caught it, but it was, you know, more or less they, they reprimanded Norman for speaking out of school. And those who are paying clear, careful attention to this are speculating that the LIV will remove Norman as soon as they can without people knowing it, like months from now because I think he was a poor choice for them, because he's such a polarizing guy. But Mark's right. like it's, It is a disservice to the U.S. Open that we're talking about this. By the way, 19 golfers in history have won five or more na- majors. Um, I can name them all. I don't know if we want that. But it ranges from Sebi Ballesteros to Lee Trevino to Nick Faldo, Bobby Jones, Tom Watson, Gary Player, Ben Hogan, Walter Hagen, Tiger Woods, Jack Nicklaus, Phil Mickelson among them. Scott's in Portland. What's Phil Mickelson's legacy in your mind, Scott?
2: Yeah, I'm not understanding this. Uh, so somebody wants to go out and work for a different job, different tour, and they're being victim- villainized for that?
0: Well, I think but it's you- the con- it's the connection to the Saudi government.
2: Well, whatever. That, I mean... That's
0: just politics. Whatever. Ah, I, no, I don't know if it's politics. I mean, did you hear the beginning of the show, or are you just tuning in?
2: I'm just tun- tuning yeah. in, but I've heard this before. I, I don't, I don't, I just don't agree that these guys are being treated this way because they want to go play on a different tour. I, I just, I just don't
0: okay. agree. I understand that, and, and look, I'm not here to, I'm not going to bang on you for it, but I think that part of the discomfort is rooted in the fact that in Saudi Arabia, you, you've got a government that is, is terrible, treats people horribly, mutilates women, um, beheads people, um, uh, killed an American journalist from the Washington Post, assassinated him. Uh, e- even locally in our region, I pointed out at the top of the show, two cases. One that just breaks my heart, it's, you know, there's a family in the Portland area who had a daughter who was walking on Hawthorne Boulevard. She was run down by a Saudi citizen who ran her over and killed her. And the family lost their daughter, and the Saudi citizen was arrested and charged and was facing a uh, possible manslaughter conviction or second-degree this or that, and instead the Saudi government uh, extricated that person out of the country. Now, I don't blame people for being uncomfortable with that. And I think if this weren't related to the Saudi government's uh, attempt to sort of sportswash their image, then I don't think anybody would have a, have a difficult time with it. I do think we would all be viewing it as capitalism. I mean, I think that point has been made by several people who have called in. But, I, I, look, I'm not alone in going, gosh, I will never think of Phil Mickelson uh, as the winner of the 2004 Masters, and that's it. I will think of Phil Mickelson. I will think of gambling debts. I will, think, I will wonder about his involvement in this tournament. I will wonder why it wasn't enough for him to have, you know, 70 or $80 million in career earnings. And, you know, did he, did he even hesitate as he took that $200 million payday from the Saudi uh, Sovereign Wealth Fund? And I think it's rooted 100% in that. And I get people who will say, hey, look, uh, you know, we were reliant upon Saudi oil. But I don't know anybody who goes to the gas station and says, you know what, uh, I'll fill it up with the Saudi gas. You don't have a choice. You go to the gas station. You don't have a choice. You get on a plane. And and we have pointed this out, I think, in the last few weeks, too, for people who are going, hey, it's hypocritical to single them out. I think you have to, on a case-by-case basis, stand either for or against you know, the things that you want to do. Are you eating at that restaurant or not? Are you uh, befriending that person or not? It's a case-by-case situation. And in this case, I think it's just it's too hot for me. And I'm not comfortable with it. And I wish it weren't. Connected to the sovereign wealth fund of a country that's got a terrible record when it comes to human rights, and I wish the NBA weren't in China, and relying upon China. And I wish that uh, I wish that in our country we did a better job with, uh, you know, helping people, uh, you know, make it. You know, American families are hurting, and look at the, look at inflation, look at the stock market, look at look at what we've been, we've been talking about economically in our country in the last couple of few weeks. Um, I think it's we got a lot of problems here too. But you want to give me Phil Mickelson's legacy clean, uh, you're going to have to do it without attaching it to the Saudi Sovereign Wealth Fund. Tim Donahue, former NBA official, coming up. Leave it here.
1: Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game.
0: NBA playoffs are on. Uh, we're watching the Warriors and the Celtics. Why is it that I feel like Boston will win game six and that this series will go seven? Well, I've been watching the NBA for a while. Our next guest, longtime NBA referee, Tim Donahue, officiated in the NBA until 2007 when he resigned from the league. He was accused by the FBI uh, betting on games that he officiated in his last two seasons. He pled guilty to two federal charges related to the investigation. He was sentenced to 15 months in prison, served 11 months in Pensacola, Florida. He's written a book. If you are interested in his book, uh, Tim Donahue wrote a fantastic book. I think you could learn a lot about the NBA and officiating. I think he's got a story to tell. And he's joined us uh, several other times, and he's welcome back here, Tim Donahue. How you doing, man?
2: I'm doing great, John. Thanks for having me again. Long time uh, to uh, catch back up with you.
0: Yeah, and I love getting you on because I think you can help people sort of understand the NBA of your era, what they're seeing now, uh, the way games are officiated, and and you have, I think, great context and great perspective. And Let's say now, how much are you watching right now, and and how different does the game look from the basketball that you were officiating from 94 to 07?
2: You know, it's pretty much the same. I I do watch it from time to time. I'm on the East Coast, and it's tough to stay up uh, for those late hours. uh, You know, to watch the whole game, but I catch up with it the next day. And, uh, you know, it's something that's very similar to, uh, you know, what it was back when I was there, uh, you know, through 2007.
0: When you were back uh, officiating, and we've talked about this before, help us understand, like, you know, the, the way that the league assigned officials or maybe offered you input, the, the idea that the league was steering, you know, uh, officiating and, and causing longer series and therefore making more money. How real was that?
2: Oh, 100% real, John. Uh, we talked about it many times, and I've talked about it, uh, you know, at length in the book Personal Foul, to where, uh, you know, when a series was uh, 2-0, 2-1, 3-1, uh, the league officials would come in and they put you in a hotel room and they, uh, you know, have you watch several plays in the game and tell you that the prior officials missed these plays and they wanted you to get them right. And they always went, uh, you know, for the team that was down in the series or against the team that was up in the series. And with that being said, it put the team that was, uh, you know, up in the series at a disadvantage. And, uh, you know, it got those series to the point where it went from 2-1, 3-1 to 3-2, 3-3 and and put it in a situation where there were more playoff games for that specific series and more money was generated for the league.
0: Give me an idea of, you know, because that that is a really interesting way for the league to kind of frame it. Because if, you know, for example, in this Boston-Golden State series, I could see... You know, if the league got the officials together and said, "Hey, we really need to watch the the screens that Golden State's setting; those are those are illegal screens," all of a sudden, Golden State's offense is disrupted.
2: Absolutely, uh, one of the uh, best examples I can give, which is uh, you know very well known, was that Houston-Dallas, where uh, back in the uh, uh, early 2000s, Houston was. Um, uh, ahead in the series, two games to none, and they won the first two games on Dallas's floor. series moved back to Houston, and all of a sudden a league came in, and I think I was a, an alternate official uh, for the Game 3 in the series, and they came in and just said how Yao Ming was setting illegal screens, how Yao Ming was getting the ball and walking in the post, and they really wanted the officials to crack down on these specific situations. And with that, Uh, you know, the the officials went out and and cracked down on those things and the series went from 2-1 to 2-2 and and eventually it was a seven-game series and Dallas ended up winning it because of the complaints that Mark Cuban filed with the league office. So, uh, you know, there's always a situation where both teams are complaining, but when you put those referees in that hotel room and start showing them plays, the league wants uh, you know, the plays to be called that are going to basically extend the series and that's what they tell the referees to concentrate on and it's very important with that because as a referee you want to have the best grade that you can get because you want to advance uh you know into the next round of playoffs which is an enormous amount of money for the referees
0: that's fascinating tim donahy is with us the you know the idea that we're, we're, I think people are always skeptical of the officiating, and you were in the middle of it at that time. But the idea that you were the lone assassin has never sat well with me. I know it doesn't sit well with you, but you know how, how, is that, how do you frame that as you look back in history and you look at that era of the NBA?
2: You know, it's very disturbing for me, and I'll tell you why. I knew what I did was wrong. Uh, I wanted to accept responsibility for that. I felt by, uh, you know, doing that that the NBA was also going to accept responsibility for their part in it. I had my attorney call the NBA League office and say, you know, let's sit down, let's go over this so that, uh, you know, some way something positive can come from this. And they wanted nothing to do with me. And I just felt like, uh, you know, David Stern was uh, an arrogant jerk off when it came to the whole situation. He wanted to put me in a in a corner and, and say that I was responsible for everything. when when in fact uh, there was a lot of culpability that uh, could have gone around, and if they would have admitted that, uh, I think it would have uh, come across much better than uh, the way it did come out.
0: We're talking to Tim Donahue, former NBA official. The you know the moment where you kind of lost your way. Can you pinpoint it? Pinpoint it, or is it a series of things that uh, resulted in you placing wagers on games? You
2: no, know, I think it's a, it's a series of things. I. I definitely, um, you know, made some poor choices, big mistakes, uh, you know, um, cost myself a, a lot, you know, my freedom, uh, my profession, my family, uh, something I'm definitely not, uh, you know, um, happy about, but, uh, again, you know, I made some poor choices, which I think most of us do in life. Some are not, uh, put out there for the world to see, but, but mine were, and, Uh, You know, I just got hooked on gambling and and enjoyed gambling a lot, whether it was on the golf course uh, at the casinos or betting on professional sporting events, which uh, eventually spilled over to uh, sporting events that I refereed. And, uh, you know, very embarrassing for me and my family, especially my father, who was a longtime college basketball referee. And, you know, with that being said, it was a a total disaster, and, and it cost me everything.
0: When you, the games that you officiated that, that you changed outcomes on, or you, uh, how did you do that, how, how uh, noticeable was that to people watching
2: games? You know, I think what I did was is I just uh, emphasized the things that the NBA wanted us to call, and uh, I knew that the team was going to be put at an advantage or disadvantage, whether it was a regular season game or a playoff game. And uh, with that being said, I would look in the USA Today and, and see the line and, and notice that uh, there was a major disadvantage for one team or another. And I passed that information along to people that were associated with organized crime. I was able to pick these games at 80 percent correct uh, during playoff time at an even higher percentage and put millions of dollars into the coffers of people associated with organized crime. And that's why the FBI got involved.
0: Were you nervous and scared? You know, the people you're dealing with, it, it's out of like a movie, you know. Was there any part of you that went, hey, I'm, I'm interacting here with, with people that maybe I shouldn't be interacting with?
2: You know, I don't think at the time, uh, you know, but as, uh, you know, the investigation uh, started and I was in the office of the FBI and, and sat in with several FBI agents and several United States attorneys, Uh, You know, it it rang home that, uh, you know, I was in a lot of trouble, and and I think uh, the the thing that really put it on a table for me was when the FBI agents offered me the witness protection program, and, and that was something where I remember leaving that meeting saying, you know, I'm in much further than I ever anticipated that this would go.
0: Tim Donahue is with us. I, I got to admit, I, I saw Phil, Phil Mickelson in the story about his gambling debt, and I wondered I wonder what Donahue thinks of this. Do you think Mickelson's behavior with the LIV tour and, and the money he's taking, I mean, is there any part of you that wondered, like, how, you know, do you see a gambling problem with Phil Mickelson?
2: Oh, no doubt about it. And, uh, you know, the guy that he was involved with and uh, Billy Walters was his name, was a guy that was uh, wagering millions and millions of dollars on the games that I was given to the people, uh, you know, that I was speaking to. So, uh, you know, you know, do I think that he has a major gambling problem? Absolutely. I think when you talk about somebody losing $5 million gambling, uh, you know, it's something where uh, he's in a position where he can't control it. And, you know, hopefully he gets that under control, which, uh, you know, is something that's very important, not only for him, but for his family.
0: Yeah, I think, you know, a lot of times in sports, we we are uh, trained to look for conspiracies. We're talking to Tim Donahue. The, uh, the, the league as a whole, in the time that you were in it, was a fun time to watch basketball. Aside from the gambling and the stuff everybody always wants to talk with you about, I want to know what it was like to call games that Michael Jordan was playing in.
2: Uh, unbelievable. I mean, you would uh, be at a game where you knew you were going to officiate him. There'd be a whole different buzz in the arena when you would walk into it, whether it was a home or away game. Uh, he's uh, somebody that brought a lot of, uh, you know, reaction from the fans, whether it was a home or away game. And he uh, he turned the NBA uh, into a situation where uh, everybody wanted to watch it again. As, as Michael uh, Jordan started to take over from Larry Bird and Magic Johnson, so uh, he definitely brought uh, global attention to the game, and and he made it into what it is today.
0: Tim, did the game that you see today more or less physical than the game maybe when you came in as a rookie official in in the
2: 90s? You know, it's funny that you bring that up. I know that's a a big question that's out in the media today, and, um, you know, it, it definitely was... Physical when I came in in 94, 95, uh, you know, with uh, Bill Lane Beer and the Detroit Pistons and Pat Riley and the New York Knicks. And what the league did was they saw that, you know, there wasn't an open uh, concept to the game where the scores were in the hundreds. They were in the 80s or 90s, and it was something that the fans didn't want. So they wanted that free, flow, moving basketball, and they put in a lot of. Uh, you know, new rules that allow for that freedom of movement and the pain and up and down the floor that tried to bring back, uh, you know, that game where you had the scores up into the, you know, 110s and 120s, which was more exciting for the fans and more exciting for TV viewership.
0: The, you know, the games that you called as an official, give us an idea when you're in a big playoff game, adrenaline in the arena, the home crowd, both teams, you know, really playing at the highest level, maybe a finals or a or a uh, you know a conference finals matchup. You know, how difficult is that? More difficult or easier to call those games, or different than maybe calling an early season game?
2: No, it's definitely more difficult because any mistake is magnified, uh, you know, tremendously. And there's more TV cameras there. The the fans are more in tune to to what's going on. So. Any little mistake can can cost a team a game, so your level of concentration has to be, uh, you know, at the top of your game. And and the last thing you want to do is is be in the middle of a a sports center episode where they're talking about the referees and a call that you made that affected the outcome of a game. So, uh, you know, definitely, uh, you know, as the playoffs went from round one, two, three, and into the finals, uh, it's something that you have to be, uh, you know, on the top of your game and make sure that mistakes weren't made.
0: I talked uh, with Bob Delaney once upon a time about you know superstar treatment or star treatment in the league, and and uh, you know I want to know from your standpoint that you know how is that an unspoken thing, or are the officials talking about it before the game, or what does a player need to do to get star treatment? Where do you stand on that?
2: You know, definitely star treatment was uh, you know a part of the game, that we used to talk about it in the locker room and at halftime and even during timeouts on the floor during the game when a a star player like LeBron James, Kobe Bryant, Michael Jordan had two or three fouls, the last thing you want to do is call a foul to send him to the bench where, you know, people paid thousands of dollars to sit in that arena to come see that person. So with that being said, the last thing you want to do is call a foul on him uh, to send him to the bench so we would talk about if there's another player in the vicinity Of that star player, give that foul to that person so that he can stay in the game. It's
0: fantastic. I I mean, I just think you know, if you told that to like you know somebody who never saw a basketball game, they'd say that makes no sense. But it makes it makes all the sense in the world because we're really talking about entertainment, aren't we?
2: Absolutely. And and in fact, when I was sitting with the FBI agents and they did their investigation, they were uh, you know in shock at the things that I was telling them, and they were mortified. And after they did the investigation, they came back to me and they said, Tim, we believe everything you said. This is wrong. But if you look um, at the end of a game, it says NBA, a form of entertainment. So basically, that's the same thing that pro wrestling puts at the end of their matches. People may not think that they're similar in that way. But legally-wise, you know, the NBA can do anything they want and not be brought up on charges because... Basically, it's, they're saying it's a form of entertainment.
0: Give me a guy that you officiated that you just loved to officiate his games, and you know, maybe gave you respect or played the game the right way, and just because of it, it was a more joyful assignment for you.
2: You know, when everybody asks me that question, I always talk about David Robinson because I was in my first or second year, and uh, you know, when you're an official in your first or second year, you're very nervous. You want to get the plays right everybody's always coming after you. And he took a shot, and I got caught standing behind him, and I couldn't see the fact that somebody hit him on his elbow. Uh, Timeout was called, and he gave me a little bit of a hard time. Walked to the bench after the timeout, he came up to me, and he said, you know, I got hit. And I said, well, listen, I apologize to you. I got caught in the stack. I didn't see what happened. And, you know, hopefully I won't miss it again. And instead of giving me more Grief. he basically tapped me on the back and said hey i appreciate that hopefully it won't happen again and i think those guys that you know realize that you're not going to get every play right are guys that you learn to respect and and try to make sure that you don't ever miss a call for them because uh you know they're not the guys that are being complete jerk-offs to you
0: is there a player that's difficult to officiate just because of the style of their game
2: You know, definitely when when I was there and, uh, you know, I think back, Shaquille O'Neal was somebody that was difficult uh, to officiate because he was so uh, aggressive on both ends. And when he was in the post, he would swing his elbows and he was so big and strong and powerful, uh, you know, he could knock somebody over much easier than somebody else would. So he was he was definitely somebody which is was tough to determine as whether it was an offensive foul or it wasn't something that you should let go or call. So he was he was a guy that was tough to officiate.
0: You miss it, Tim Donahue?
2: Absolutely. I mean, if I told you I was lying, uh, I, I think I'd be telling you I was lying if I told you I didn't miss it. You know, you're running up and down the court with the greatest athletes in the world and in front of 20,000, 25,000 people. The excitement that you can get from that is, is something that, uh, you know, is is definitely missable. Tim
0: Donaghy, you know, I know you're fresh off a knee surgery, so I appreciate you uh, giving us your time. Uh, the book, Personal Foul, check it out. Donaghy wrote it uh, several years ago. We had him on when it first came out. If you haven't read it yet, pick it up. Tim Donaghy, thank you for joining us. Get well.
2: John, always a pleasure. Thank you.
0: All right. There he is, former NBA official, Tim Donahue. Love hearing from him, love getting that perspective, and i got to be honest, when I watch NBA playoff games even now, I wonder about the things that Tim Donahue says, and I wonder uh, how much the league will play a role, or human nature will play a role, in the Boston Celtics possibly winning Game 6 and forcing a Game 7, which is sure to attract a huge TV audience, uh, more commercials, more revenue. I'm told $7 million a game these playoff games are worth. A, a, a game seven might be worth more. Leave it here. you got the bald-faced truth. Our big splash is coming up.
1: Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game.
0: Worlds of Sport coming up this weekend at the Oregon Convention Center. I have a four-pack of tickets, courtesy of Dutch Bros. 503-417-7575 is the number. If you get put on hold, stay on hold. You may be a winner. Yesterday, somebody who was going to be one of the winners was on hold and then got taken off hold or hung up. I don't know what they did. But if you want to go see Worlds of Sport this weekend, want to bring your family we have two day passes courtesy of dutch bros we have four of them uh for a family of four 503-417-7575 is the phone number sean will pick the winner and you'll get to go to worlds of sport what is worlds of sport well thank you for asking it's all your favorite brands it's all your favorite teams it's all your favorite athletes under one roof at the oregon convention center if you go to worldsofsport.com you can see more but we're talking about eSports and the Blazers and the Timbers and the Thorns and the Winterhawks and the Hops and Oregon and Oregon State and uh, members of the United States women's national soccer team and Portland Thorns forward Morgan Weaver and Anthony Newman and Alex Molden, former NFL players, and Jaden Grant from Oregon State and Keith Brown from Oregon and Daley McClellan from Oregon and a whole bunch of others under one roof. A lot of giveaways, great Father's Day weekend event worldsofsport.com for tickets Judah Newby what did you think of Tim Donahue's interview
1: it is fascinating you know and I think the seeds of what he still alleges is happening in the NBA is real you know the seeds the human factor of officiating games is definitely real I don't think it's as explicit as it was when he was officiating but he always reveals some interesting stuff Uh, fascinating character
0: I wonder when I hear Tim Donahue talking. You know, of course there's some part of him that doesn't want it to be limited to just him. I don't believe for a second that he was the only official in the NBA that was influencing the outcome of games. I think there's probably some truth in what he's saying, just like with Jose Canseco and others.
1: But, man,
0: it's fascinating. We interrupt this podcast with a special announcement from the Baltimore. sorry to interrupt the podcast, but...